the magic of mindfulness is that it dissolves the glue of identification. Sometimes we may expect or demand too much of mindfulness if we think that somehow it is going to stop us from thinking. That's too much to ask. But what mindfulness can do is notice the thinking. And in the process of a bare attention to the process of thinking, gradually dissolve our identification with our thoughts. And in that dissolution of the glue of identification, we experience a spaciousness, a freedom, a non-compulsivity, if you will, in our life. And that really is the direction that practice moves us, is towards less obsession, less addiction, less compulsion, less of a constriction in our life. So that rather than having a single reaction to the way things are in any moment, we have a choice. We have a range of responses to the situation we find ourselves in. This is freedom. This is the essence of freedom, is to have true, genuine choice. Regarding our thoughts, suffering comes when our thoughts pinch us when the sense of ourself that is conditioned by that thought is too tight, it doesn't fit, it hurts, or in some way we, we either don't want to identify with it or others identify us with it. Tonight I want to speak about one whole arena of thinking that is a source of a tremendous amount of personal suffering, institutional discrimination, and just a whole vast uh, structure of suffering in society. And that is the activity of the comparing mind. You all know it all too well. And you know the suffering that comes from the comparing mind. But I want to speak about it in such a way as you can begin to see how mindfulness allows us to disentangle our sense of self from this activity which is going to take place. Have you noticed how much of our thinking 
is an attempt to create, sustain, maintain, repair, present, perform a sense of self to ourselves, to others, and how rarely it is a source of happiness. And the corollary of that is how often it's a source of suffering. Our thoughts revolve around three topics. Who I am, what I want, and what I believe. It's all about me. (laughs) And these three topics are called in the Buddhist language, papancha. Papancha means proliferation, the, the, the manifestation, it's just the proliferation of thoughts around who I think I am. The, the, the huge amount of thoughts around what I want and what I believe. purpose of mindfulness is to develop insight. The insight is freeing when it dissolves the glue of identification. When we see impermanence on a very deep level, a moment-to-moment level, when we see that conditions are changing, Our sense of self, conditioned by those conditions, is changing. Whatever self we create out of comparing ourselves with others dissolves. It's this insight into impermanence that really frees us from the suffering of identification. One papancha, one area that we have a lot of thoughts about is the sense of self created through comparing ourselves with others. This is called in the Buddhist language mana. Mana is usually translated as pride or arrogance or conceit. And it refers to the delight or the elation that we take when we have some experience, or some quality, or some attribute that we feel really represents me. It's really who I am. And it can be anything. It can be some quality such as our appearance, or our intelligence, how much money we make, It can be some possession, uh, where we live, how we live, a car. It can be something we have done, an accomplishment, an achievement, a degree that we have. It can be some condition, gender, religion. It can be anything that we take as representing, as, as, as really being who I am. 
the essence of me. The, the, the. And, of course, we don't really believe that. But momentarily or temporarily, and in certain situations, we do. And that's where the suffering comes. The activity of conceit, or of mana, is rooted in attachment. And the attachment is not so much to the thing, or the quality, or the possession, or the achievement. It's the attachment to the sense of self that's created by it. It is always accompanied by delusion, which means we ascribe to experience a significance or a meaning or a value greater than it actually intrinsically has. Rooted in attachment to the sense of self, deluded, accompanied by delusion because we give it more value, meaning, or significance than it truly has. And it's fueled by restlessness. And what this means is that we, we take a momentary perception. You know, we see something, we see someone, we see something about ourselves in a single moment, and then we reflect on it over and over and over and over. We beat ourselves with this judgment or this comparison. I'll give you a really simple example that you've all probably done here on retreat. You know, you're sitting and you're one sitting and you're squirming around and God, the body's really uncomfortable and pain and aching. You know, you're waiting for the bell and you just happen to open your eyes and look around. And there's that other person over there somewhere, sitting perfectly still, totally upright, a half smile on their face, and you know they're just blissed out. And you have this impression, I'm not a very good yogi. And then you close your eyes out of disgust. And that thought keeps rolling around, I really am not a very good yogi. Look how restless I am, how much pain I have. They were so good. And we take this momentary perception. It took a split second. We saw something. We ascribed a significance to it way beyond what we actually saw. We saw somebody sitting still. That's it. That's all we saw. You know, chicken sits still for a long time, Ajahn Chah said. You know, and they don't know anything. Okay, so... But we ascribe this tremendous significance to sitting still and straight, and then we repeat it restlessly over and over and over again in our mind, just churning out this perception. We eternalize a momentary perception, and in the process we generate a sense of ourself that causes us a tremendous amount of suffering. And every time we have the thought, the sense of self is there, suffering. I can tell you, seeing somebody sit still doesn't mean anything about your practice. (laughs) But that doesn't do anything for your suffering. Okay. So this activity of mind, rooted in attachment, accompanied by delusion, fueled by restlessness. It's it's important to begin to see how this is happening on a moment-to-moment basis. I mean, we know the suffering. We, we've seen that part of it. 
But let's look at the process that leads up to this suffering, because then we can catch it long before it gets to the place of, I'm such a suffering. And we can begin to catch that part, see it, and disentangle ourselves from this unconscious identification by merely being non-judgmentally aware, mindful, of seeing as seeing, thinking as thinking, judging as judging, evaluating as evaluating, comparing as comparing, and the process never (coughs) generates a sense of self. (coughs) Usually, manas translated as pride, arrogance, conceit. There are three kinds of mana. The familiar superiority mana, which we know is arrogance, and I'm better than because I sit stiller, so to speak. There's inferiority mana, I'm worthless because fill in the blank. And then the Buddha, in his extreme ability to see every possibility, saw that there was also equality mana. insisting on being equal. We'll get to them. Now, I want to make an exception here. I want to acknowledge something. Our minds are conditioned long before we ever get a personality to look at things very discriminatingly, to notice the difference between things, to know the difference between mom and someone else when you're a little baby. And so we don't want to blame, we don't want to somehow uh, condemn our capacity to notice very refined distinctions. That's not the problem. We want to be able to look at and evaluate situations, people, conditions, events, and make the decisions based on those accurate comparisons that will support our life, that will support our aspirations and and living life skillfully. So the comparing mind is not the problem. Identification with a sense of self created by that comparison is the problem, because in that identification, there's suffering. Okay. Superiority mind. We take some quality Here in Yogi Land, it's how still you can sit, how slow you can walk, how uh, serene you can look, and how spiritual your vibes, or something like that. You know? And we take some quality, and then we measure ourselves, or we measure each other. We look around, we say, who's got the most? And the activity of this comparing mind, the superiority, says, I got it, or they got it. And we're caught in this 
identification of ourself as being or having more of something. And in that isolation, we don't just say, oh, they or I sit stiller. We say, they're a better yogi. I'm a better yogi. What's really happening there? We take a momentary perception through the eye door, through the ear door, another one. You're sitting, minding your own business. Somebody asks a question at the end of the morning sitting, and from their question you realize their practice is someplace you're not. (laughs) Did you ever have that? And wow, if you don't note hearing as hearing, you're going to believe something about them in comparison to you. And down you go, or up you go. You hear somebody, you know, ask some really silly question that even you know the answer to. (laughs) Hey, you know, really feel pretty good. Now, I've got to step back here again and say, we have a sense of self. It's changing. You know, it's conditioned by different experiences, and sometimes we feel really good about it, sometimes not so good. I'm not suggesting that identification with self, a sense of self, is the same as a healthy self-esteem. Because to do this practice, you need a healthy self-esteem in a relative sense. You really need to have some sense of yourself, having some uh, capacity, some strengths, some limitations, recognizing them, being able to acknowledge to yourself your own strengths, your own limitations, your aspirations that are not yet fulfilled, your aspirations that have been realized. And to know that you really are, or we really are, a process, you know, a work in you know, a work in progress, so to speak. Not a reification, not a solidification around a momentary perception, but a healthy self-esteem allows for the possibility of growth, of change, and a, a capacity to respond to, or to grow into new capacities, new situations. And a solidified sense of self is fixed, it's rigid, it's reified, it has its yeses, it has its noes, and that's it. Not healthy. Okay. We solidify our perceptions around our class, our uh, organizational affiliations, our uh, in anything, where we live, Whatever. Superiority mana is pretty clear when we when we elevate ourselves or when we see that we have more of some some quality. And the feeling is one of pride in the familiar sense, arrogance, conceit, being superior in some way. The Buddha also said, you know, 
We do this with inferiority mana too. We look at others, or we look at ourselves, and we see that we don't measure up. We have less of some desirable quality or desirable attribute or desirable possession than someone else. And so we feel inferior. Now we know that we're not, in somewhere in the back of the mind, we know we're not inferior, but that perception can be so strong that we feel inferior. And that sense of a self gets churned out by the restless mind that's not being noted, not being mindful of. And inferiority mana works a couple of ways. One is seeing that you have less than of a desirable quality or seeing that you have more than of an undesirable quality. (laughs) And with that, we feel devalued. We feel minimized. We feel inferior. Now, you know, in Earlier in the retreat, we talked about, uh, for example, reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha as a way of supporting your practice. Well, is it possible to reflect on the qualities of the Buddha and not measure yourself? How can we use archetypes, ideals? How can we use uh, images of perfection, if you will, in a skillful way, so that we don't end up beating ourselves and saying, the Buddha, oh my God, I, I'm not even close, I'm not even, forget it. You know, I really am incapable, incompetent, unworthy. Can we use images of perfection? Can we uh, use them to inspire our practice, to show us the direction we're moving, and not use them as a yardstick to measure our progress. Another another way that we get caught in inferiority mana is to have a sense of an ideal. Just what's it like to be a good yogi here? You know, we've told you what it's like to be a good yogi here. You know, you follow the schedule, you don't talk, you don't write notes, and you eat little and sleep less. Okay, how you doing? <laughs> if we measure ourselves against an ideal, again, we will always come up short. Always. But can we take that momentary perception, that momentary comparing mind, and use it merely as an indicator of, okay, Here's my strengths, here's my limitations, here's where I need to work. And not reify it, not make it a solid, this is the way I am forever. Because in doing that, we deny the, what we all know to be true, is the fact that everything changes. We deny impermanence when we insist on eternalizing a single thought or a single perception into the endless future.
this inferiority mana, when we compare ourselves with an ideal, it leads to a tremendous amount of self-criticism, a sense of worthlessness or unworthiness, a sense of um, just being un- in- incapable. And that really undermines our practice. If we can begin to notice how and when the comparing mind is generating dust, then we can just see it as, oh, this is comparing. We don't have to stop it. We don't have, we don't have to agree with the comparison. We don't have to disagree with the comparison. But rather find that place in the middle, the middle path of knowing that comparing is happening in this moment. Maybe true, maybe false. That's not our concern. What's important to us or important in the practice of freedom is knowing that the comparing activity is happening. If you get caught in agreeing with the comparing, whether it's a favorable or an unfavorable comparison, a sense of self gets solidified. If you get caught in disagreeing with the comparison, the same thing happens. You get caught in a sense of self. And that sense of self will always feel too tight. It'll pinch. It'll hurt. It'll cause suffering. Even if it's favorable. Because conditions change. I, I teach a seminar on this topic, and one of the exercises I have people do is to compare themselves with, for example, all Dharma teachers along a whole range of the paramis, for example, and then to compare themselves along the same range of qualities with you know, Saddam Hussein. It takes Saddam, for example. Loving-kindness. Compare yourself to the Dalai Lama. More or less loving-kindness than the Dalai Lama. Well, okay, let's be reasonable. We don't know. But <laughs> and then compare yourself with Saddam Hussein around loving-kindness, more or less. Well, it's possible that you're going to feel like you have more than one and less than the other. So which one are you? Which one do you want to hang on to? Which sense of yourself are you want to get underneath the comparison of either greater than or less than is the is the the bare fact of you have this much you have this much loving kindness that's that's it that's what you have whether it's more or less than is not anything and yet a sense of self gets conditioned in either case. Okay. So we have superiority mana, inferiority mana, the Buddha was thorough, equality mana. Well, what is equality mana? Can you imagine? It is the tendency or the desire 
or the capacity to insist on equality in the face of differences. It's the, it's the unwillingness to recognize genuine difference or the inability to uh, acknowledge differences or to minimize inferior qualities in others. Now, again, the suffering comes when we solidify a sense of self and reify the differences. If we take a momentary perception and see it for what it is, fine, more or less, equal, okay. If we cannot repeat that in our mind and create a sense of self. Sometimes in our practice, we're having an experience and we compare it to a former experience. You know, last retreat, it was like this. This retreat is like that. Okay. If, we're, if it seems like we're not doing as well, sometimes we might say, well, it's really all equal. We're just, you know, we're just trying to be mindful of whatever arises, right? And maybe there is a genuine difference. Maybe we really are lazy this time. Maybe we're not willing to recognize that, unwilling to acknowledge that about ourselves. Or several years ago, decades ago now, um, in the midst of the dissolution of one relationship that I was not dissolving, (laughs) I used to say, I used to insist, remember the way it used to be? That's the way it still is. It wasn't, but I couldn't... (laughs) Acknowledge it. Or take, you know, sometimes within the Buddhist traditions, you know, there's the Theravada, you know, those, those old hardline fundamentalists, us. <laughs> and then there's those Vajrayanas, those new age people that have a lot of fun. <laughs> and then there's those people in between, the Mahayanas, uh, that have all that uh, Zen tradition. Okay. Which is better? Well, if you ask any one of them, they know which one's better. Right? They're all better to themselves. But sometimes we too get caught in the comparing that wants to insist on my practice, my tradition, my teacher, my whatever you got, whatever you claim is yours, better than. What this does is it tends to either minimize authentic differences or it tends to um, kind of level everybody down to the same playing field. If we insist on this sameness, the equality, we don't recognize individuals' uniqueness or tradition's uniqueness. Neither does it accept or acknowledge the fact of change. On the other hand, let's not minimize differences. We should 
still acknowledge unfairness, discrimination, uh, whether it's institutionalized or personal, and confront it. There are differences. Let's call differences differences. But let's not so solidify behind them that we peg others based on a single perception, momentary at that. When I was a monk in Burma, all monks look alike. You know, they wear the same robes, they shave their heads, and uh, they walk kind of like they do. And there's a certain equality among monks. And yet, if two monks meet the f- for the first time, the first thing they will do after the pleasantries of, hi, how are you, where you come from, okay, is, how long have you been a monk? <laughs> Because monks do everything according to seniority. How long you been a monk? And the one who has been the monk the least will pay respects to the one who's been the monk the longest. No matter what they are in chronological age or what they are in uh, meditative accomplishments, that's not the point. The point is how long have you been a monk? And I've seen monks meet. You know, how long have you been a monk? Oh, 34 years, 34 years. Oh, really? Uh, what month? Oh, April. You? April. Oh, what day? Oh, the 10th. The 10th. What hour? Until they find out which... Mostly it's all done in quite good... Uh, 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 respect. You know, just really respect. But among us Western monks... <laughs> We didn't have the tradition of uh, respecting. It got, at times, it really got to be, you know, I got ordained, you know, two weeks before you. You walk in line behind me. (laughs) It can be really a source of suffering to get caught in whatever, superior, inferior equality. One way we can work with this activity of mind, which will take place. We, as I said, we do need to know how to make very refined distinctions. One way we can do that is to reflect on what are called the eight worldly conditions. There are eight conditions which all beings experience. Pleasure and pain. There's these two. Whether someone has more pleasure or more pain, or whether I have more pleasure or more pain, now as opposed to earlier, or me as opposed to you, all beings experience pleasure and pain. And yet, often we get caught in comparing ourselves, comparing our practice. You know, you come in and you have a sitting that has a lot of pain and discomfort in it. Doesn't it feel like you're not as good a yogi as one when you had a lot of bliss? Uh, I, uh, I would guess that 100% of us would think that. And it's not true. It has, whether you're experiencing pleasure or pain has nothing to do with how good your practice is. It really doesn't. And yet, we all experience pleasure or pain. Gain and loss. There are times in our life 
when we'll have a lot. There will inevitably other times in our life, like when we don't have it, when we just are living with, without abundance, or we lose what we have gained. When we reflect on the fact that we've been through this pleasure, pain, gain, and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, these eight worldly conditions, how can we be complacently satisfied with where we find ourselves now? Or, on the other hand, irritatingly unsatisfied or uncomplacent with where we find ourselves? Conditions change. We were teaching a retreat recently with, in California, and Joseph Goldstein was there, and I'm going to steal one of his lines, so I'm giving, him cre- I'm giving you credit, Joseph. <laughs> he was reading a poem, and in it the author was saying something like, I know now how the pyramids were built, slowly. And the footnote was, almost anything is possible if you give it enough time. Anything is possible if you give it enough time. Wherever we think we are or aren't, give it enough time. It'll change. You won't be here in this place forever. Whether you're on top of the heap or at the bottom of the heap, you won't be here forever around praise and blame. I had this really interesting experience several years ago when I first started teaching, within the first couple of years of teaching. I was experimenting with my way of, <coughs> of giving Dharma talks. Everyone has to find their own way. And I took a risk and, and gave a very different kind of Dharma talk one time at the suggestion of a couple of yogis who thought it would be good to hear. and. After the Dharma talk, at IMS particularly, there's, there's a real culture of note writing at IMS. And I got this massive amounts of notes from yogis saying, what a great Dharma talk. That was just what I needed to hear. It was right to the point. It was nice. You were so open. And blah, blah. You know, all that, all that stuff, praise. And I, you know, you get a little, oh, that's good. Yay. Okay. All right. The next evening, we had a teacher meeting, and all the other teachers came to the meeting with all the complaints they'd gotten from all the yogis who thought it was totally inappropriate that I gave that Dharma talk. (laughs) That one Dharma talk, I got more praise for it than any other Dharma talk I've given. I also got more blame for that talk than any other talk I've ever given. Praise and blame is just like that. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't. It, if you grab onto it, if you grab onto the sense of self that is conditioned by the praise, here comes the blame. If you, on the other hand, grab onto or identify with the sense of self that gets conditioned by the blame, how can you ever hear authentic, genuine praise? The self is this ever-moving, fluctuating, conditioned thing. It's not solid. 
looking at the eight worldly conditions of and seeing that we our lives are a continual movement between gain and loss, pleasure, pain, helps to cut identification with any one set of conditions. Another way of beginning to see through this identification is to, when you find yourself caught in comparing mind, or you find yourself caught in some self-image which is really painful (coughs) for whatever reason, ask yourself, how did it happen? Was it through hearing something? Was it through the ear door that you took in information and proliferated a story, a sense of yourself? Was it through the eye door? Was it through thoughts? And then look at what quality, what one quality or aspect or attribute in that comparison you're actually measuring. Because we, as I mentioned, we ascribe significance and importance and value to perceptions that don't have it. A third way of working with the identification around comparing mind is to reflect on death. And I spoke about reflection on death earlier, but another way of thinking about death is to just know, just to think, you know, we come into this world with nothing except a body and parents. And we acquire all this stuff, all these imprints and all these images and all this sense of ourselves that we carry through based on experience and possessions and what we have and do and what we don't have and what we don't do. And when we leave this world, we don't take any of it with us. What is worth holding on to now? Why do we insist on holding on to what we will inevitably, ultimately, have to let go of? If we can let go now, what will be taken from us when we die? We save ourselves the suffering in between. We save ourselves that struggle to maintain some sense of ourselves in the face of where we're going. Rich was here in the retreat earlier for, he had intended to be here for two weeks and he only stayed for four or five days, got a call that his mother was really ill and had taken a turn for the worse. He went home and got there a couple of days before his mother died. And he said that even in the last, whatever it was, four or five days that he was there, as his mother lost, you know, the whole physical capacities and dignity and privacy, and, and she was a very proud woman, it just was so excruciatingly painful for her. And then, you know, to, to lose the future. No, no, no future. It, it's really close. 
what sense of our, what sense of herself could she keep? Nothing. There was nothing that she could keep. Only a very painful sense of self that is losing everything and is dying and is in pain. And that's all that, that it was very torturous for her. And so Rich was, I was talking to him just a couple of days ago, and he was reflecting on how how important and valuable this practice is because we get every opportunity to see our stuff and let go, see our stuff and let go, see our stuff and let go, relationships and, and in the past and what we have and what we don't have and our judgments and our fears and our joys and our sorrows, our ambitions, things we fulfilled and things we haven't fulfilled, they're all there. They'll be coming into review somewhere in the retreat. Can we see them and let go of them? Or do we still see ourselves as that person conditioned by that experience 20 years ago, 40 years ago, how long ago? Where are we caught? What sense of ourself is still being held because we haven't let go? We see it all the time. We see it in our practice all the time. This is the value. This is the value of just noticing on a moment-to-moment level how we create our suffering and how we dissolve our suffering by just paying attention. We're not figuring anything out. We're not solving anything. We're not getting rid of anything. We're just seeing this is how it's created, this is how it's dissolved. If we have any other agenda, the self behind that agenda is getting solidified. said to his son, Rahula, Rahula, develop the perception of impermanence. For when you do, the conceit, I am, will be abandoned. Develop the perception of impermanence. See on a moment-to-moment basis that whatever is arising, whatever sense of yourself is arising, is dissolving right there. For when you do, the sense, I am, meaning I reified, continue to be, is dissolved. It's abandoned. When we see the moment-to-momentness of it. As we continue with our practice, we become intimately familiar with the thoughts, the memories, the plans, the hopes, the dreams, the ambitions, 
that are still active in our mind. We see them, they come out. The object of mindfulness practice is not to stop them. It's not to get rid of them. It's not to prevent them. But it's to see them in such a way that we do not get entangled in them. And the only way to do that is to recognize them when they arise for what they are. A thought, a plan, a memory, a sense of self, an ambition, a fear, a joy, a superior self, an inferior self, an equal self, whatever it is that's conditioned by that activity of comparison. And we not only do it to ourselves, we do it to each other. We look at others and say, and see a quality or behavior and attribute, and we judge them. When we see our mind doing it, we can begin to step back, or let me say, not indulge in the thought, the content of that thought. And in this, we we really are using mindfulness for what it can do. Create space in our heart. Create space in our mind. It can't stop thoughts from arising, but it can disentangle you from the suffering that's involved in identifying with them. We see the coming and going of all four foundations of mindfulness. Sensations in the body, pleasant and unpleasant feelings, emotions, thoughts, the more often we recognize and step back, the more spacious the mind becomes. But there's a further insight or deepening of insight into this characteristic of impermanence which needs to be mentioned. It's not just the impermanence of thoughts, feelings, sensations, images, plans, memories. the very consciousness that is observing all that is impermanent. And when the insight into impermanence sees that the knowing is also impermanent, this identification with I'm the one being mindful, I'm the one who's knowing, gets dissolved. This is a, a doorway into a radical letting go of identification. When we see through and dissolve the identification with the knowing itself. The Buddha said, Though with a faithful heart one takes refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, or with a faithful heart one observes sila, the rules of morality, or develops a mind full of metta, by far 
more meritorious it is if one cultivates the perception of impermanence, even if only for a moment. More than a life of taking refuge in the Buddha Dhamma more than a life of observing the rules of morality, more than a lifetime's heart full of loving-kindness, is a single moment of the perception of impermanence. It's that significant to know all things change. Nothing remains the same. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. One question remains. What's left when we let go of everything? May Sarton speaks to this in her poem on Autumn Sonnets. If I can let go as trees let go their leaves so casually one by one, if I can come to know what they do know, that fall is the release, the consummation, then fear of time and the uncertain fruit would not distemper the great lucid skies. If I can take the dark with open eyes and call it seasonal, not harsh or strange, and tree-like stand unmoved before the change, lose what I lose to keep what I can keep, love will endure if I can let go. Thank you again for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.